Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you like this podcast, you will love my new anthology called Moms Don't Have Time to Have Kids. Check it out, and you'll hear from 49 authors about all sorts of things moms don't have time to do. All the authors have been on this podcast. Also, check out my TikTok, at with Zibby and Tracy, my other podcast, Sex Talk with Zibby and Tracy. Check out Moms Don't Have Time to Write on Medium. And of course, my new publishing company called Zibby Books. And now back to our daily author interview site and a quick hello from some of my kids. Hi. Hi. Hello. Enjoy the show. Debbie Millman is the author of Why Design Matters, Conversations with the World's Most Creative People. Named one of the most creative people in business herself by Fast Company and one of the most influential designers working today by Graphic Design USA, Debbie is also an author, educator, curator, and host of the podcast Design Matters, one of the world's first and longest-running podcasts. In the 16 years since its inception, that's 16, in case you didn't think you heard me right, one six, Design Matters has garnered a Cooper Hewitt National Design Award, six Webby nominations, and an Apple Podcast's Best Overall Podcast designation. In 2009, Debbie co-founded with Stephen Heller the world's first graduate program in branding at the School of Visual Visual Arts in New York City. She is the author of seven books, including her latest, Why Design Matters, and has been published in over 10 languages. Her writing and illustrations have appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, New York Magazine, Print Magazine, Design Observer, and Fast Company. Her artwork has also been included at prestigious universities and museums around the world. Debbie is President Emeritus of AIGA and is a frequent speaker on design and branding. Her TED Talk was ranked one of the best TED Talks of 2020. She lives in New York and Los Angeles with her wife, Roxanne Gay. 
Welcome, Debbie. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss your book, Why Design Matters, Conversations with the World's Most Creative People. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so honored to be here. I love your podcast. Thank you. Oh my gosh. You're so sweet. You know, it's so funny because a couple of years ago when I was nominated for the Webby Award, you were one of the people I was nominated against. And I was like, who is this woman? Like what's going on? And I did all this research on you. So I've been like following everything you do since then. And now I'm like so delighted to to be talking to you. Me too. Same here. Oh it's my great that, that we can finally meet, meet face-to-face. <laughs> it's also so neat because you are this consummate interviewer, right? All the, the introduction to this book and everybody's talking about, you know, your wife, Roxanne Gay and Tim Ferriss, and even your description of how you do things and how many episodes you've done over 400. Everybody's talking about your amazing interview style. So like, here I am, <laughs> on this podcast, I'm like, whoa, gosh. <laughs> anyway, I'm kidding, but it's like a little, uh, I'm like, what did, how does she do it? <laughs> oh, I'm happy to talk about it. It's just so easy for, for me to talk about. So please, if you want to talk about that, we can absolutely do that. Okay. Well, let's start with, uh, let's start with this absolutely gorgeous book, Why Design Matters. I'm so, it, it, first of all, as like a coffee table book. This is amazing. So for people listening, it's this, you know, square book, white with red letters and this little squirrely, you know, squiggly black line. And it looks like something you just want to cuddle up with and read and delve into every picture. And then all the pictures inside are gorgeous of the different guests. It's been on Debbie's first radio show and then podcast. Okay. So how, why this book, why this way to do this book? There were so many ways you could have gone. So tell me about that. Well, initially, just a couple of years after the podcast started back in, I want to say 2007 or so. So two years after I started the podcast, I was actually talking to Stephen Heller, who is featured in the book, who's my mentor and who's written about, I don't know, over 200 books about design and culture and every aspect of of the creative practice. And I was, I hadn't published a book at that point and I really wanted to. And so the thing that felt most credible to me was maybe doing something about the podcast or on the show that I was doing at that time, which he didn't think was a very good idea. And the reason was because he felt that everybody could just listen for free. There was no reason. And in hindsight, I'm really, really glad to listen to him because two years after doing the podcast, I was still a pretty crummy podcaster. Oh, <laughs> In fact, I was an entire, no, I was, a, I, I, there's, I've been doing this now for 17 years and the first four, I ha- did not know what the heck I was doing. I was terrible. I remember asking my second guest after we were finished and she was a friend a friend. And I said, so how do you think I did expecting like backpats and high fives? And she paused and said, well, and you know, nothing good is coming after that word. It's headed in quite that way. (laughs) She said, well, it might be better if you listen to my answers before you started crafting your next questions in your head. And she was right. And and over the over those first five years, even I would say I was constantly learning on the job. So to have come out with a book at that point would have been a disaster. And in fact, I really didn't think about it again because at that point, you know, in 2017, when the when the 
book deal first came together, I had already published a number of books. So that the idea of doing that specific kind of book about the podcast had sort of long fallen by the wayside. But my agent, Charlotte Cheedy, was really certain that at that point in time, it would make a good, it would make a good artifact, if nothing more, about the history of the show, about the longevity of the show, what it was like in the early podcasting years, which was sort of, you know, the gold rush in a lot of ways. And, and so I reconsidered and thought about it. And at that point, pre-pandemic, I was excited thinking about approaching this more from an editorial perspective. I wanted to go on a photo shoot. I was going to take photos of all the guests that were included. It was going to be a very creative, highly hands-on endeavor. And then of course the pandemic hit and I had to rethink everything I was doing about this book, which I had already gotten in advance for, some of which I'd already spent. So it wasn't like (laughs) I was giving it back. (laughs) And so at that point I had to rethink, but now and it, and I got a year a year extension because of of all of the things that were happening in the world with the election with COVID, and now the book is finally coming out. Really, almost five years later, after the original idea first became a reality, and so the it's a little bit hard. Of, despite the length of my answer, <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit hard to say why now. Only in that, I think that Charlotte really believed that there was something to be offered in a collection of some of the best conversations that I had. And I, I agree now it, uh, now that it's done and, and feel really grateful for her to her for helping me to make this happen. And also the format choices I'm interested in, because I've, you know, I've always thought like, well, what should I do? I have all this kind of hours of conversations. Right. What do do with them? Like what, so you've chosen to do this in such a gorgeous way. I mean, this is such a unique way to handle that. So why make it like a, I mean, I know your background is on design. So of course that makes sense for you and your brand and everything, but just speak to like how you came up with this format and the way to tell your, you know, tell your story through your conversations. Well, I I did have I do have to say I rode the coattails a little bit of the great designer Michael Beirut. Michael Beirut is a longtime partner at Pentagram and has really helped create the visual language of of our world. Honestly, he's that he's that accomplished. And I was sitting in my editor's office as we were talking about my vision for the book, and I knew that I wanted to do something square because of the format of the logo and the way that visuals show up on Apple podcasts and Spotify and so forth, you know, that, that little sort of square, which used to be, you know, a giant 12 by 12 album. (laughs) And I was sitting in her office and Harper Collins also published Michael's book and Michael's book was 10 by 10 and gorgeous. You know, the paper was gorgeous. The the jacket was gorgeous. The case was gorgeous. Everything about it, the photography. And I said, well, I'd love it to have that sort of plunk value of, of Michael's book. And so <laughs> that ended up biting me a little bit in, in the back, only in that when I came to Charlotte with the first round of covers, I'm not sorry, not Charlotte, when I came to my editor with the first round of covers, she was like, well they look a little bit too much like Michael Beirut's. And I'm like, well, Michael, <laughs> Michael's book came out like five years ago and 
they really don't. And it's a totally different title. And she's like, oh, I, I don't know if I told you, but Michael's reissuing, republishing a book in a new edition coming out the same time yours is. And I was, she's like, because of the size, we don't want people to get confused oh. given that you're both, you know, in the design field. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> so we ended up having to work around that. And I think ultimately did in a beautiful way. Michael's book is black with white type, mine is white with gray and red. And so you know, that was a struggle though for a little while and kind of a big disappointment. And I also didn't want Michael to think that I was copying him any more <laughs> than I already was. You know? And then in terms of the inside, in terms of who was featured, right? You have some authors have a big picture, which is gorgeous, like Anne Lamott. And by the way, we have so many of the same guests, but I wanted to like make a whole list, but it was really exciting to see them. Anyway, Anne Lamott, who is one, has like a full page, beautiful picture of herself. But then someone like Alyssa Altman, who I also adore, has like a quote, you have like some quote pages that aren't. So how did you go about figuring that whole thing out? Who's getting a quote? Who's getting an excerpt from their interview and the picture and all of that? It was a challenge because I have interviewed over 400 people. I had a finite number of pages. I was originally supposed to submit 70,000 words. I submitted 150,000. Thankfully, oh we gosh. did a lot with the type to make it all work. And the interviews, if I, if I transcribed any of my interviews, especially in the later years, I would say from 2015 to now, those interviews come in at about 10,000 words. There was no way I was going to be able to include 10 or 15 interviews. It just wasn't going to work. So the biggest criteria for inclusion was, can I pull out a part of the the conversation that could stand alone without a beginning and an end? You know, sort of the well of the conversation. Does it stand up on its own? And in some cases, it didn't. In some cases, that well, that sort of significant aspect of what we were talking about was highly dependent on their backstory, their origin story. And so I couldn't, I couldn't take it out. And I I didn't want to destroy the integrity of the interview by pulling something out. And so that became, the, the quotes became a way of still including people that I felt belonged in the book, simply. The interviews themselves, not only did I feel like I could pull out something standalone, 25 to 4,000 words, it also felt like it, it needed to really be timely. You know, there were some authors that I had on the book where all we talked about was the 2016 election. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't want to do that again in the book. It would feel really stale. Not that the topics aren't interesting, but the actual sort of specifics of the election would feel really overdone. And so, so I had to make some really, really hard choices. So the the excerpt act, act, you know, the excerpt ability, the timeliness, and it being timeless. And then, as importantly, and I'm glad you you mentioned it, the photography. Initially, I wanted to go on a photo tour, mm-hmm. which would have been a blast and so much fun. But I couldn't do that. It was COVID times. I also didn't want to do remote photography where I was directing somebody through the screen. Mm-hmm. Didn't feel like that was intimate enough. And so one of the things that I ended up having to do quite surprisingly, quite unexpectedly was photo edit my own book. That gave me a real opportunity to do something that I hadn't done since college when I worked on my student newspaper. (laughs) And, And that was to really become a photo editor and research and find photos that I felt had the right energy and soul. One thing that I didn't want was a 
magazine type book where it looked like different articles from different writers and photographers. Mm -hmm. I really wanted there to be a thread that knitted all of the photographs together. And for me, that became every photograph had to reveal the author or interviews or write, it was authors, interviews, musicians, so many designers. It had to reveal their song. And I really, really think I did that. I have to say, it's one of the things that I'm proudest about in this book is the journey that people take through the book, looking at the the artists and editors and writers and performers and so on and so forth. And so, you know, some of them were really hard. And there were there were a few that I had to exclude because I couldn't get a photo that really said, this is who I am. Look at me, see me. and. Then and then that, that was why I would include a quote because people were the people that I I wanted to include were really important to me every single person you know it's like Sophie's Choice picking interviews it's <laughs> ridiculous and so that was a way for me to include a lot more people I also was able to do that on the end pages I yep. did that as well and then there's also a little surprise under the jacket on the case of words that I chose that if if people explore enough they'll find. Under the jacket. Okay. Um, on the case. Ah. Oh, I'm glad you didn't see it yet. Yay. <laughs> Reveal in real time. Wow, look at this. Oh, my goodness. Very cool. Very cool. So neat. I love it. And these pictures, I mean, oh, my gosh. Look at it. It's like, I feel like I'm like with some of these. Albert, yeah. Oh, my gosh. I, I I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm holding up Albert Watson, and you have this mix of like Anand Giradasi. Giardas, yeah. Giardas, and these like close up, like smoldering looks. And then I remember earlier I saw like Alain de Botton, and he was like sort of farther yeah. away. And like, mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember what other ones. Yeah, this one of Malcolm Gladwell. I mean, they're pensive just. Pensive. Yeah, pensive yeah. and thinking. And anyway, beautiful. That ended up, believe it or not, this ended up becoming the part of the book that I had the most joy with. Wow. I was the photo editor of my yearbook back in high school, ah, so yes, I get you it. Know, you know, yes, right? It brought me back to college. It was phenomenal. <laughs> back to the dark room and, you know, all of that. <laughs> yeah, the stack camera. Layout and all that. But yeah, I love photography so much. And seeing these pictures, you know, this is a work of art just in that. So Thank you. Thank you. It was really neat. Let's talk a little bit about your interviewing. I love how it was described in the book, exactly what your studio looked like. Is that still how you do them with the... It it is when I can do them in person. Yeah. But because of COVID times, it's much harder. It was a big adjustment to begin to do the interviews via Zoom, like we're doing now. But I also sort of think there's something slightly more intimate about being a lot closer to a person. You know, when I'm in my studio, it's a very small studio. It's very intimate. It's dark, but we're still like three feet apart. On Zoom, you're really just like one foot apart, you know, and there's no barrier. You're just sort of looking right into someone's (laughs) eyes, or at least it feels that way to me, right? (laughs) Yeah. But the, the process of doing the show in the studio it feels a long time ago. I only done one since with one person. No, no, I'm sorry. Two, two. It's since 2022 in the studio, everything else. And in 2021, I did a record number. I think I did 37 episodes. So that's a lot of Zoom time. And I'm, it's sad for me to not sort of have that physical presence. And 
one of the bigger differences and one that I'm sad about is in the studio, I was able after the interview, I always had a live studio audience, a little bit like inside the actor's studio, and but it wasn't televised. <laughs> and when we'd come out of the studio, my students, my grad students would have an opportunity to ask their own questions of my guests for about a half hour. And that's something I really do miss. First, because it gave them some access they would never have otherwise had, which they loved. And secondly, they always ask really good questions. They ask really good questions. And, and I always was learning from them about what they were curious about. So that's, that's an aspect of the show that I'm sad about. You know, I did something sort of like, I might have a solve, but I have this virtual book club and what we, I talked to the book club about the book and then I always have the author come for 30 minutes of Q&A afterwards. That's wonderful. So I'm thinking similar, about, yeah. yeah, I'm thinking about doing something on Clubhouse where I invite the guest back uh-huh. and then, you know, a big audience could come and because everything is audio, just, I don't know that anybody would feel like they were missing anything by being able to join, but that would also require, I don't know how you've been able to ask people for more. I always feel so, I don't know, apprehensive about asking and like, oh, would you like to do this too? <laughs> you know, but I think I'm going to try it with people that are willing. I don't do it at the same time as the podcast. Yeah, I won't. That's a good it's, idea. It's more like, hey, would you, I don't think it's such a big ask for 30 minutes of someone's time for Q&A. It's pretty yeah. easy. You know, they don't have to okay. prepare anything and they get exposed to some new people and I haven't found that to be too hard. It's my, I feel, I feel worse. Well, I don't know. Anyway. It's a whole separate conversation yeah, about what we feel entitled to do and not to do. I right? know, exactly. I know. I'm like, maybe I should have stopped right there. We can talk about that when I have you on my podcast. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, too funny. And your conversations though are, they're in depth and long, right? An yeah. hour and a half. Sometimes. I mean, they're, they're usually an hour and a half, but we might have a very, very intense editor who, I, you know, every now and then when we were in the studio, I'd see him looking at his clock and I'd be thinking, oh, that's where he's cutting it. <laughs> when looking my editor falls asleep, I yeah, know. Like, that. When my editor is bored, I know I have to sort of, you know, speed things up a little bit. I, I love to talk. I love to hear what people have to say. I love to listen. You know, I, I, I love to just probe. And ultimately, though, I think, unless they're musicians where they're playing something for us. Generally now they go about an hour, an hour, a little bit, maybe over occasionally, but mostly about an hour. Although I guess I'll keep talking to people until I sort of sense that they don't want to talk anymore. (laughs) That's, I mean, that's a big, I feel like that's a bigger ask to be honest, because that's a big chunk of time. Somebody could go watch a movie or something, not that they would have, but but it makes your, your format so powerful, right? The, the, intensity and how deep you are able to go. I mean, that's really such a gift, right? I'm, Thank you. It must be really, I, anyway, it must be. I do love it. I do love it. I feel like I have one of the best jobs in the world, being able to listen to people, especially, you know, now I'm getting into a place where there are people that I'm interviewing that I have been fans of for like most of my life and certainly all of my adult life. I interviewed Ricky Lee Jones a couple of months ago and I've been kind of obsessed with her music since 1979 when she first came out. And so to have, to, to be sitting, you know, face to face with her. And at one point she started to sing or Michael Stipe from REM, same timing, you know, thinking back to my younger self and imagining fantasizing at that point about being able to talk to them. It, it would have felt like, no, you're talking about somebody else's life. 
And so it feels so extraordinary to be able to do something like this when these people mean so much to me. It's a gift. It's a Debbie, gift. I feel the same way. This is what I'm always saying about this. Like books that I read as a kid or in my 20s or 30s right. or whatever, or during a really hard time of my life. And that was the book that helped me through. And then all of a sudden, the author is like sitting next to me here or on Zoom and I get to talk to them like any other conversation I would have all day. It's like magic. magic. I, it's, it's just amazing. Yes. And even just to be able to thank someone for the profound effect they've had on your life. I know yeah. they probably get it all the time, but... I don't know. Mm, yeah. Goosebumps. I have goosebumps because I feel exactly the same. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I feel like we also have so many. So I used to be, I started my whole career in branding. And so I was really familiar with all the, I mean, you, of course, at the top of, went to the top of your field and ran, you know, your own company and everything else. But I've always been really interested in understanding consumer behavior and consumer relationships, people's relationships with the brands that they love. And I couldn't articulate exactly why, but from a young age, I was like, I want to write a letter to Colgate. I mean, I did this with authors too, but like, I would like, my mom would read me the back of the shampoo while I took a bath. I'm like, read it to me again. (laughs) Oh my God. I love that so much. I love that so much. And what I would not give to see those letters. Right. And they would send me form letters back, you know, thank you for writing us about how much you like Kleenex. I was like, wow, I got a letter from a company. Um, And then I worked in advertising and brand planning for a little bit. And I got to be a part of that whole thing. And I I would sit in as like a college intern on the Maxwell House campaign things or the Pepperidge Farm this or this or that. Oh my God, both of those brands I worked on. All of those brands I've worked on. Oh my God, we could have been in the same meetings. I think that you should write a story called Letters to Colgate. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) just about your feelings about that time would be so, I think so many people would relate. I love it. This is what I usually do is tell people what they should write about. (laughs) It's like, this is great. But but I feel like there's some overlap in this. There's something about the power of brands and brand relationships and 
And because it's really intimate, honestly, the feelings mm-hmm. you have, it's, it's another relationship that you have in your life. Yes. It's somebody you trust. It's somebody you can feel betrayed by. You can feel a loss. Like when, when the, something's discontinued, like <laughs> the, the corn muffins at Barefoot Contessa, the shop, like when that shop closed, I, I felt like I grieved for that because that was like a brand for me. And then of yeah. course she went and made all the cookbooks and is very, you know, omnipresent at this point, but there's something about that. So I'm, you're like the brand guru of all time. And you were so funny in the book saying that you thought maybe you'd, you would go in the grocery and almost everything on the shelves you felt like you had done their branding for. Tell me a little bit about relationships between people and brands and then how that sort of gets translated into this sort of deep curiosity into people in general. It's a great question. I think early on, I, you know, I had a really really as, as we've all had, but I had a, a very difficult upbringing. And when I felt bad about myself, I started to fantasize that if I had certain things that it would make me feel better about myself. And my dad was a pharmacist and he had his own pharmacy. And so I, when I went to visit him after school, First, just to to hang out and play in in the back of the store, but then later in later years to actually work in the store and work the cashier and do a lot of the shelf setups and windows and so forth. I began to sort of fantasize about what these things could do for me. So my very first obsession were with Goody Bratz. And he had this sort of magical, what I felt was a magical, sparkly, shining wheel that spun. And on, on the hooks were all of these barrettes and ponytail holders and headbands. And I thought, oh my God. And every time I went to visit him, I was allowed to take one thing. And I would spend, you know, half an hour deciding, should I take the yellow ponytail holders or the red headband? And I remember so desperately wanting one of my best friends who lives next door, one of her ponytail holders that was a particular kind of pearlescent yellow that Mm. I couldn't find anywhere. I stole it from her. (laughs) I wrote a whole story about it. I stole her barrette, which, you know... I can't, I, look, I, I, I wish that I could find her and apologize and send her like 500 yellow ponytail holders. But that's how desperately I wanted to feel better about myself. And what I realized from a very early age was that whatever cachet these things were giving me, I mean, I couldn't have put it into words at that point at all, probably not well into my 30s. They were just replacing, you know, with a, or, or really trying to fill up a very hollow center that had a lot of leaks in it. So it kept needing, you know, it was a real leaky bucket. So every, you know, goodie barrettes turned into Levi jeans, turned into Lacoste shirts, turned into Nike sneakers, turned into, you know, a Prada jacket that doesn't ever last. You know, we metabolize our purchases very quickly. We metabolize everything. We metabolize our promotions. We metabolize our our hunger. I mean, everything is metabolized. That's that's part of the nature and the chemistry and biology of our bodies um, and our brains. So that over the years has become harder and harder to balance with the need to responsibly manage the 
the, the way in which we manufacture products on the planet, but also how we as, as as how corporations have a fiduciary responsibility to the shareholder. You know, it's very hard to say that you're going to put the needs of the planet or the needs of the people first when Wall Street is managing your finances and looking very closely at your finances. And the way that our capitalist system has been set up is problematic in that way. Wow. Long answer. <laughs> oh, can you tell me more about your childhood and why it was rough? Oh, uh, you don't well, have to. No, I mean, I you know, trigger alert for people listening. You know, my parents got divorced when I was eight years old. My mom went on to marry somebody that was physically, mentally, emotionally, sexually abusive to me and to uh, some of his other children. That marriage lasted four years. Uh, at, during that time, I was not allowed to see my biological dad. Then I was, he had, he had some significant anger issues, ended up marrying somebody that also just was very hard for me to be around uh, for lots and lots of reasons. My dad was a super complicated person. I loved him very much. I wanted very much to make him proud of me. Was a, was, you know, a great student and overachiever, you know, your classic people pleaser. And yet it was almost impossible to please him. And over the course of, of our lives together, he passed away in 2015. There were five significant estrangements that we had where, you know, for a, a decade or so, we wouldn't speak to each other. That was the longest one, or he chose not to speak to me. So that was really, really hard. My mom's been married four times. She's now a Trumper, you know, believes that Trump is the prophecy, thought things that if we should be wearing masks, we should be born with them. My therapist said when she heard that, what about clothes? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My mother's also a seamstress, so the whole thing is just batch it. Uh, so yeah, that gives you just some, some top line points. Oh my gosh. You know, and I, I, I know I'm sure you've like done the work on with your therapy and everything else as we all aspire to do all the time, but you know, the consistency of a brand is, is a huge balm, right? It's, it's, it's always there and it always, that's why people get so upset when things are changed. Yeah. I mean, it's quite astonishing to see that we're living in a day and age when a brand changes their identity, that change.org petitions are created (laughs) demanding that they go back when what they went back to is like 150 years old, but it's because people, you know, nobody likes change. Change sets up all sorts of alarm bells in the reptilian brain, which wants to be safe and secure and certain and know what's coming next and be on, on secure footing. And any any kind of significant change creates a sense of vulnerability and uncertainty in a person and that they don't know if it's the same product or the same ingredients, the same cost, the same content. And so that creates a sense of, nervousness and and trepidation, which people then respond to, as you can see online with lots of anger and sometimes real vitriol. Wow. So in terms of visual, translating the visual, because that's one piece I feel like you have down pat, right? Like I, I feel like I have the relationship piece, but I don't have, like, I can't create necessarily. I know what I like, but I'm trying to 
get better at, you know, like I'm trying to teach myself Canva and like, I'm like, I just want to be able to, well, I just want to be able to do the things that I know I like because it's so hard for me to explain it. You know, Mm -hmm. there's that, but I feel like you're more on the, you totally get it. I mean, you're, you've started this whole school of visual arts program. Like you're, how, how comfortable are you with sort of the execution of all of it versus the instruction? I'm a wonderful art director and I am a wonderful strategist. I can say that with with great confidence. And I have a great eye. Those are things I know I do well. You know, it's always good to know what you do well. It's also really important to know what you don't do well. So like, I'm not great on all of the Adobe programs, though I respect them and use them. I'm not by any means an expert. And so I know I need help there. You know, the bigger issues for me are the things that I don't know that I don't know. Like, Obviously, I do know Canva, but you could have said anything and I would have been like, oh, what's that? You know, whenever anything new comes in, oh, what's TikTok? Oh, what's Vine? Oh, what's, I mean, then I learn them, but I'm not an early adopter by any means. And my wife often jokes that I have such a complicated relationship with technology that it's hard for me sometimes to figure out how to turn on the TV. It is hard. I'm yeah. so annoyed at the TV. I'm yeah. so annoyed at all the things, but that's another, you know, I want a boom box back or I press one button right, and I could have right? music. Or yes, like yes. WPLJ and Z100 or like that was it. PLJ, there were two choices. Right? Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, I know you've written more than this, of course, but unless I missed it, I didn't see if you that you'd written a whole memoir. Have you written a memoir? No, I haven't written a memoir. I've done a lot of visual essays that are memoir-ish in, in nature, but short. And, and I'm very tentatively taking steps to thinking that that might be what I do next. Well, I started this publishing company called Zibby Books, and we're doing 12 books a year, fiction and memoir. We just announced this book we're doing with Claire Bidwell-Smith, who wrote The Rules of Inheritance, called The Rules of Forgiveness. And we're really trying to do books just like what I would imagine your memoir would be. So I'm just putting it out there. If you have any interest in working together on it, I think that would be amazing. So, Oh my God. Thank you. That would be amazing. Yeah. I'm really, it would be very visual. That's, that's, you know, I, I do a lot of drawing and so probably more in the vein of the book of illustrated essays that I did called self-portrait as your trader, but that was not a memoir. It was just a, it was just reflections. Well, if you want to talk, if you want to talk after, I think that would be so cool. I mean, your story and how you've come out of this. And I mean, I just want to hear more and more and more. I'm like totally over the time. Like usually I never lose track of time. This might be the only time I've lost track of time. So anyway. Thank you. Thank you. So anyway, last question. Do you have any advice for aspiring authors? Aspiring authors, draw your words. It opens up different parts of your brain at least to get started, especially if you have some writer's block, draw the words. I love that. Wow. I cannot draw to save my life, but that's- Well, that's also why it's, you know, you don't have as much expectation for excellence. That's just the exercise of drawing the words sort of opens up different neural pathways. Well, I'm sorry. I took extra bits of your time here today. I'm so sorry. My pleasure. Don't be sorry. This was so much fun. So much fun. It was great to get to know you. And Great to get to know you too. I'm in New York too. So let's definitely have a coffee when I'm back in town. Yeah, that would be great. I would love it. Okay. All right. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. 
Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.